to episode 291 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This show was engineered on Sunday, 16th of January, 2022. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA. Jensen USA, where you will find a great selection of products at unbeatable prices with unparalleled customer service. Check them out at jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Hey everybody, it's David from the Fredcast, and of course, I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast since 2006. For show notes, links, and other information, check out our website at www.the-spokesman.com. And now, here's my fellow host and producer, Carlton Reed and The Spokesman. Thanks, David. On today's show, I'm talking bike boom stuff with industry veteran and former specialised marketing director Rick Vosper, author of some outstanding analysis pieces on BicycleRetailer.com. In this hour-long show, we discuss whether the bubble has indeed popped. Yes, this is an inside baseball chat. In other words, a deep dive into what you might consider to be of abiding interest to industry types only. But, as Rick explains, the bursting of the bike boom bubble reverberates widely and could even destabilise global bicycle advocacy efforts. This is therefore of potential concern to cyclists in general. Rick, um, I know your industry background, your long industry background, and and uh, people who've listened to this, or regular listeners uh, to this show, people who've listened to this show before, probably know uh, some of your background because you've been on the show before and you've told people. But for new listeners, the people who don't know who Rick uh, Vosper is, is and his illustrious background in the industry with a, a, a bunch of companies that everybody knows. Can you give us a thumbnail sketch of, of where you've come from uh, in the industry and maybe where you are now even? And that, and that can be geographically too. Mm-hmm. Uh, Industry-wise, I have been in bikes since the summer of 1980. I was in and out uh, in addition to the bicycle industry. I've had a parallel career in advertising Uh, But within the bike industry, I've been director of marketing for Specialized Bicycles and for uh, Cervelo Bikes and a couple of other smaller companies. Right now, I've got a little consulting business I do that is almost entirely bike industry business. So companies come to me when they want to bring a brand to market or are having problems with a brand. Uh, I can do that and my associates can do everything from writing ads to producing websites and so forth, all the usual marketing kind of stuff. And, and geographically, where are you? South Arkansas. Uh, my wife has family here. So I was a California kid most of my life, and I've moved mm. around the country since chasing jobs. But uh, we have a granddaughter here, and so that's where we are. Because that's, that's not like uh, Waterloo, Wisconsin, or other places that are kind of out in the sticks, but are bike industry central. You're not bike industry central there at all. No, not hardly. We're still two hours outside of Little Rock and uh, about four hours from Walmart land where all the bike development in Arkansas is happening. Mm. Mm. 
And there is tons of stuff happening there, isn't there? Actually, with with uh, there is Stuart. Is it how do you pronounce his name? Do you know how you pronounce his name? Is it just Stuart? And it's just a strange spelling, Stuart Walton. I believe it's just Stuart. Now, uh, one of the things you didn't mention in your your very brief uh, thumbnail sketch of, of of who you are, Rick, was and, and what I want to talk to you about. And, and I've been a regular reader of yours for for a long time. But you do these these fantastic articles. Uh, in bicycle retailer, normally they're quite long. The, the the latest one is 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 shorter than normal, I would say, uh, but they're just incredibly cerebral. Uh, absolutely using your your background uh, with the various companies and the various people you've, you've you've dealt with in the industry. So you're a real you know inside baseball uh, kind of guy, and and these articles are get a lot of traction. On, on certainly within the industry, and I'm sure because it's a it's a you know public facing site, then then people outside of the industry too. So the latest one, there there are clearly many 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 Rick Vosper articles on bicycle retailer, but the latest one really piqued my interest um, because it's bike boom stuff, and and basically where you're uh, you're you're talking about potentially the end of of the bike boom which which is which is i guess you know everything you know anything that goes up has got to come down i guess um but but is that the case rick D- does it have to come down or, or do you think we've got another year two years of, of growth what, what have we got well it depends on who you ask the uh nobody knows what's going to happen because the market is being driven by covid and people who had not been cyclists previously are flocking to bike shops in record numbers and buying lots and lots of bikes. In fact, more bikes than the than the factory side of the industry can produce. So, who's telling you it's going to be the booms continuing, and 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 who's telling you uh, it's not? You'd have to name names there if you don't want to, but just maybe the types of people, the kind of the sectors that are telling you. There are there are two theories at work. Um, the first is that when I talk to retailers, and I we have a whole closed Facebook page where we do nothing but talk about what's going on in the industry. Retailers are telling me that in fourth quarter of 2021, sales declined to the levels they were before COVID. So the 2018, 2019 levels. The other theory is that the people who bought bikes in 2020 and 2021 are going to be back and they're going to bring friends with them and demand is going to continue to accelerate. I don't happen to buy that theory, but there is there is the potential there that because you, you were mentioning the the, you know, the, the 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 channel was was choked in many ways in that factories couldn't produce as you said factories couldn't produce enough bikes to meet the demand so might there not just be that latent demand there that couldn't you, know, you couldn't meet that demand during the the pandemic uh, because you couldn't get the stock now the stock is coming. You know, wouldn't that just be instantly sucked up by the people who wanted bikes but couldn't get them? It certainly could. And that's one of the variables we're trying to look for. Right now, when people on the supplier side of the industry look at their forecasts, they're saying, um, some of them are saying, senior executives at very large bike companies are telling me that by May of 2022, there should be inventory at suppliers. That's in addition to inventory at bike shops. So they're forecasting May of 2022, supply will eventually catch up with demand. Uh, now, before anybody, I mean, people might have tuned into this and they think, oh, they're just talking about industry stuff. I'm going to tune out again. We can like express how this is actually potentially 
uh, important for consumers too, because the more people who buy bikes and carry on buying bikes, uh, touch wood, the, the, the whole um, sector rises and that benefits everybody. So the more people bicycling, the more people getting on bikes is a good thing for everybody. So this is not just you know, an inside baseball chat we're having here. This is something that could impact everybody who who, who gets on a, a bicycle, either recreationally or or transport. Would you say that's uh, a fair reflection of, of why people should be interested? It absolutely is. More people on bikes make cycling better for everybody, including people who don't ride bikes. <laughs> yes. How, how so? Sell that one to me, Rick. I'm a motorist. Okay. I'm, I'm a redneck. Sell, sell that one to me. <laughs> You're like my neighbors, you're saying. Oh, okay. Yes. Uh, the, the idea is the more people are on bikes, the more cycling culture flourishes. So that has implications for uh, how cities are built. It has implications for fitness levels, uh, for anti-obesity, and for all the things that your listeners know are great about bikes. Mm. And the more of it the, it is, the better it is for all of us. And even the people, even your redneck motorists benefit when there are fewer people in cars. They may still curse the bikes that, in their opinion, are blocking the roadway. But at the end of the day, there's going to be less density of traffic, and that's better for the people in cars, too. Mm. Mm. I, I would I would tend to agree there. So then it's that also means it's a bad thing, then, potentially, if the industry goes down. Because there's less less marketing dollars to be pumped into advocacy, or pounds, or or, or euros. You know, this is this is a global industry, so we need more bums on seats, basically. Yeah. Oh yes, absolutely. So going back, and this is you said before, you 1980. So this is clearly before your time, but you you will absolutely know this because these are all you know industry tropes. So the last boom, the real big boom, and I'm not I'm not counting mountain bikes or BMX here because they were big, but they weren't as big as this. So the 1970s bike boom, you know, when it went from you know virtually nothing, uh, just a few million to like 15 million bikes sold almost you know, well, within six months, it it it, it, it just went through the through the roof but that that did fizzle out it it did die and so i i wrote a forbes article um looking at um the lessons from that um potential lessons that we, we could learn from today uh, however uh many of the the companies that actually came out of the bike boom some of them weren't founded you know to benefit from the bike boom but they just people were turned on by bikes. And then some of those people actually founded companies that we uh, basically dominate the industry now. So Specialized is a post-bike boom, you know, 1974-ish company. Trek is pretty much a bike boom. They were there a little bit beforehand, but, you know, their growth was certainly the bike boom, post-bike boom kind of, you know, growth. And then Cannondale. And, and even you can giant, you can say, because of, you know, King Lou, you know, had to you know, stop his um, his fish farm and, and and go and do something else. So he came from the from the the bike boom too. So do you think if even if we do have um, the the bike trade does go down, we do have a dip that there's potentially some interesting things underneath the water that could be happening. So whenever you get more people into a, a sport, which we've got an, an activity during the bike boom, that can actually refresh the gene pool in many respects. Do you see anything like that potentially happening? Well, I think two things. The first is 
I don't see the, the, the boom that we currently have been experiencing continuing into 2022. What I'm saying is there's going to be a massive amount of inventory at dealers' shelves and at uh, wholesalers by May, and there just aren't the number of consumers demanding bikes that we have seen in the last couple of years. This puts us back into a scenario where there is more more inventory in the in the industry in the channel than consumer demand will support. And that means dealers are going to be stuck with tons of inventory on hand. They're going to have to discount it in order to bring it out. This is a nice thing for cyclists because they can get bikes for cheaper, mm-hmm. but it's a little hard on the uh, mechanics of the industry. Mm-hmm. So that's always a difficult topic to talk about. When it is an inside baseball chat and we are revealing that there are probably going to be price. It's, it's almost a, like a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you, if you then tell people that, uh, well, prices are going to go down in three months. They may just hold off any bike purchase they were going to make, you know, now. So there's always a, a danger of basically just talking about this actually creates it. It absolutely does. In fact, when we go back, let's say, 10 years, where um, right after the Great Recession worldwide, but particularly in the United States, We've been importing about 12 million units per year in bikes with wheel sizes 20 inches and larger. And this does not include electric bikes, which have their own their own plate pen. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been importing about 12 million units to the United States per year. And that has always been an oversupply historically, you know, again, in the last 10 years. And consumers have been trained to wait a couple of months and they know prices will go down. Now in 2020 and 2021, that was not the case. It was, if you want to buy, come into the shop now and maybe you can get it. I'm forecasting an increase in supply that's not matched by demand. So to, to your question, yes, consumers may choose to wait, but uh, that isn't anything they haven't been trained to do by the industry going mm. back to the to the Clinton administration. Mm. Yeah, no, 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 totally. So savvy consumers have tended to 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 wait because they know there's going to be this this turnover where you're going to get the discounts appearing at this time for next year bikes. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm. So that's not good. So th- I used to edit bike biz. So I oh, I founded bike biz. So I, I was incredibly. Uh, connected to the industry at one point, I, I am absolutely no longer quite so uh, connected, but still very, very interested, of course. And then I see things that have, have, have really changed the industry, you know, really radically in the, in those few years since I've been away. And, and one of the things that's happened recently has been the entrance of PON. And PON has been steadily buying up uh, uh, companies over the last number of years. They're, they're basically a car retail company uh, in, in Europe, and they've been buying all these bicycle brands. And and tell us about their, their it was October, I think, $800 million. So what do they do with that $800 million? And, and, and how important do you think it is that PON is now uh, really muscling in on the scene? I think it is tremendously important, and it's one of the biggest changes in the industry in the last 15 or 20 years. We have a new player who has come out of basically nowhere 
and is now the largest supplier of bicycles in North America, uh, of bike shop level bikes, not uh, not Kmart mm. or, or Walmart level bikes. What Pond has done is was unexpected and it is absolutely game changing to the extent where the new Pond lines, which would be Cannondale, uh, Cervelo, Santa Cruz, uh, Focus, GT. Uh, G- GT, yes, GT2. Schwinn. Mm. Schwinn is not part of the cycling group package. Oh, isn't it? It's a different, it's a different division of Durrell, and only the, the, the brands in CSG, uh, ah. cycling sporting group division, are, were sold to Pond. So the, Schwinn the, is... The- the bike shop bikes, basically, not the right. not the supermarket right. bikes. Right, right, okay. correct. So this makes Pond suddenly a nine hundred pound gorilla in the industry. Mm. They have the potential to displace Giant as the number three brand if you consider the constellation of Pond brands. Which, in addition to the brands I named from the U.S., they have an outstanding portfolio of European brands, including uh, Focus, which is a soup to nuts, very high-end European brand that's starting to get a little bit of traction in the United States, and Kalkoff, uh, and and others, uh, which specialize in the in the e-bike side of things. Yeah, so are they going that, vertical then? Are they they going to go into really buying lots of bike shops? You know, they'll have the retirees, the people who founded their bike shop in the bike boom of the, the mountain bike boom of the 1980s are now looking to retire. Is there going to be a whole slew of them bought up by Pond? Not necessarily by Pond. There are three bike companies actively buying up bike shops. And as you suggest, a lot of times the scenario is the owner got in in the 80s or 90s they're looking at retirement now. Bike shops have historically been very hard to get value for when mm-hmm. they're sold to a new owner. Um, but this will change. Now we have three companies, Trek, Specialized, and now Pond, who are competing to buy up key bike shops in major major market areas. Trek, for instance, owns somewhere between 100 and 200 bike shops in the USA, just owns them outright. Mm-hmm. Specialized is playing catch up. Uh, recently, uh, recently, Trek has been buying up uh, shops that were former specialized dealers and turning them into Trek dealers. So the objective is to own a bike shop in every key market in the United States. And depending on how you depending how you count it, there's about 10 of these that include Northern California, Southern California, Colorado, Pacific Northwest and so forth. But Pond has entered, and Pond has the deepest pockets of, in theory, of any company in the industry. They can buy any bike shop they want. It's just a question of how much they want to and what their strategic growth is. You have to consider that with the Pond brands, and let's just use the American-facing ones, which is Cervelo, Santa Cruz, and now the Cannondale Sporting Group, Cannondale's Cycling Sports Group, uh, which is Cannondale and GT and so forth. All those brands have the same existential problem. They can't get into enough good bike shops to give the brands traction in the market. So the solution is we'll just buy the bike shop as well as, you know, as well as sending our sending our products to other bike shops. 
you know, it's going to take a lot of shops to be purchased for Pawn to achieve a, a significant market advantage over, say, Giant, which is currently the number three brand in the market. But their pockets are deep. They have shown the same pattern of behavior in Europe, uh, in the, the car hire market, and uh, as well as in the bicycle business. I mean, potentially, uh, Rick, sorry, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm interrupting there. I've kind of come up with a question and just have to blurt it out. Potentially, this is a good thing for everybody um, because the, the, the bike trade, the bike industry has been plagued for 120 years. We're talking a long time of the route to market has mainly been uh, through independently owned bike shops. But they're, they're atomized. You know, they do their own thing. They're hard to control. They're hard to professionalize uh, because they're doing their own thing. Sometimes that has strengths, but that also has very, very obvious uh, weaknesses. It's like a, it's a cottage industry kind of thing. But with Pon and all of these other companies who are presumably going to be uh, trying to, to compete with Pon, that potentially could have, say, three or four big groups who then own and probably professionalize bike shops. So wouldn't that just be an overall good thing uh, for consumers? It could be a good thing, depending on what they do. On the other hand, there's going to be less variety in the market. Mm -hmm. So it will be like an automobile dealership in the United States. You go to the Ford dealer, you go to the Audi dealer, you go to Mercedes dealer, and you see that brand's stuff. But consumers, particularly in the United States, are accustomed to having uh, a choice of brands when they walk into a store. Now you have to you have to ask the the analogy I always use is in English pubs, where you have tied houses that are beholden to a brewery that owns or has taken up a position with with the individual pubs, and then you have a few independent pubs, and mm -hmm. both are necessary to create a healthy ecosystem. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, in the in the in the UK and now in the United States, you have the campaign for real ale, supporting traditional independent pubs, mm -hmm. because consumers like getting different kinds of beer, and in this case, different kinds of bikes. And a healthy industry is one that has a whole bunch of involved and profitable players in it. That's good for everybody. But can you be? can you be profitable if there are so many players so that's, that's probably one of the weaknesses of, of of beer also it's very very cheap to become a bike company even cheaper to become a, a bike shop but certainly cheap to become a bike company you just go to taiwan you, you buy a bunch of your your bikes you get the the stickers put on boom you're a you're a you're a bike brand so because the entry level getting into the the, the bike industry is so cheap in in comparative terms just the same as you know it's it's very cheap to become a you know a micro brewer and 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 launch your brand that way uh, into the, the the beer market but it then makes so many beers so many bicycle brands that nobody makes any money it's absolutely true in fact the bicycle industry is now literally a college textbook example of an mm. economic principle called uh, perfect competition Thank you. Thank you. I had a senior moment there, and I appreciate you filling in. <laughs> I've done my research, right? <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully you've been reading my articles on that. I in have. No, this, this is my research. My research is reading your articles. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, thank you for that. That's uh, that's very flattering. I know uh, you've been in this business for almost as long as I have, and I read longer. a lot of your stuff. <laughs> oh, even longer, huh? That no, no, I'm only kidding. Eighty beats, eighty beats me. I was, I was eighty, eighty-nine when I first kind of started writing about uh, bicycles. So, no, you beat me by nine years. I was only kidding. Mm-hmm. So, Tony, tell me about so, perfect competition <laughs> and and beers and bicycles. <laughs> Bikes and beer go together like ham and eggs. It's it, They just do, don't they? Uh, but in a state of perfect competition, you have a whole bunch of players, none of which are strong enough to begin imposing pricing premiums on the market. And one reason for this is barriers to entry, as you point out, are very low. It's easy. Uh, we could we could have a bike company called Rick and Carlton's Bikes or Carlton mm-hmm. and Rick's Bikes in about six months. Mm-hmm. If we, we we hire the right people, we dump the right amount of money into it, and the cost to to enter is uh, less than a million dollars to mm-hmm. be an established bike brand. In fact, uh, some of the some of the Walmart folks have created their own bike brand, mm, Viathon called Viathon, mm. and. Uh, it its initial direct to consumer reach was not particularly good, and it's now being sold through the Walmart website. And we're talking bikes that are you know two or three thousand American dollars. They're they're top mm. quality stuff. They're composite bikes. They were designed by competent people in the industry. Mm. Uh, it just remains to be seen how many people want to buy a three thousand dollar bike from Walmart. <laughs> but the point is, the barriers to entry are low. That means that. Even if some players are squeezed out of the market, go bankrupt, and the brand ends, the brand can be resurrected by somebody else, or another new brand can come in and begin making inroads in the market. The most significant example of this that I can think of in the last 20 years uh, has has been the Electra line. Mm-hmm. They began as an outlier, selling very comfortable bikes to uh, folks who were not traditional cyclists. They were extremely successful, and Trek eventually bought them, and it's now part of Trek's lineup. Hmm. That's an example of how low barriers of entry makes it easy for new brands to come into the market. So it's it's good. I'm being devil's advocate here on, on all of these questions, but so that's that's good that you've got you know lots and lots of brands because that's where you get uh, innovation from. You know, marketing innovation, not 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 just. Uh, uh, technology innovation. So it's good to have do. a loads of bike brands, you think? I think uh, there is a healthy number of bike brands in the market where consumers are getting a lot of choice. Innovation continues to be encouraged and uh, the companies are making enough money that they can continue to survive. I don't know exactly what that number is. When we look at people who track bike brands and bike dealers there are about 60 to 100 brands that are currently active in the U.S. marketplace, 100 being even the smallest smallest bike brands where you might have a handful of dealers in a local area. But 60-some mm. is usually the number that we look at that your listeners would go, oh, I've heard of that bike brand. Mm. See, in car terms, you know, you'd, you'd struggle to get many more than about 10 you know, you could you could keep going. You'd probably get up to twenty if you really really struggled. 
but you've basically got maybe five of the ones that you, you'd, you'd see on the roads uh, constantly. Whereas, you know, bikes, if there's 60 to 70, perhaps even more bike brands, that's too many bike brands. It's too damn easy. Well, too many for who? Hmm. Consumers, consumers ultimately decide which bike brands they want to buy. Mm-hmm. And enough consumers, well, we look at there are some relatively minor, just outstanding bike brands out there. And I'm sure you could name some if you, you, you think about it. Think about think about Pivot or Factor mm-hmm. Bikes. Pivot, Pivot, actually, if you'd asked me, Pivot would have been the one I'd have plumped for there. Yes, I absolutely 100% um, agree. I was, I was kind of chumming the waters because I knew that was like both very popular brands mm. uh, that have uh, very strong followings. They're differentiated products. They market themselves intelligently, and they make just outstanding bicycles. Mm-hmm. And they also have founders who are still with the company who are, you know, notable founders. Yes. These are people who are in the position now that Trek specialized in Giant were 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, they bring fresh blood into the market. They bring innovation and they bring customer choice. So consumers don't have to get a specialized Trek, Giant, or Cannondale bike. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's attractive to lots of people. They don't want to be seen on the top three, top four. They want something that's a bit out there. Just because, it, you know, you want to go on your cafe ride, you want something to talk about. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's exactly it. And that's part of the reason what we have perfect competition mm-hmm. is it is easy for, for new brands to establish themselves. So what's the downside of that? What's the downside of perfect competition? Uh, the downside is nobody makes any money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that describes yeah. the bike industry. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, the famous saying, which I call <laughs> Kendrick's Law, is the mm-hmm. way to make a small fortune in the bike business is to start with a large one. Yes. And mm-hmm. that's almost universally true. Mm-hmm. But then... This is an enthusiast category. And one of the things I love about bikes as an industry is mm-hmm. it's full of people who really are passionate about bikes. Mm-hmm. If we were, oh, I don't know, uh, computers or airlines or, or other examples of perfect competition, it wouldn't be as much fun. Mm-hmm. And, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, bikes are all about fun, both for the people who make them and for the people who ride them. Maybe the analogy with beer is carrying on here then, you know, because there's lots of them. They probably don't make much money individually, but they're doing it because they're enthusiasts and they like making beer and talking to other beer people probably. I mean, you could you could pretty much say that's, well, that's the bike industry. Um, I have a little bit of experience with microbreweries, and I tell you, that is exactly right. Mm-hmm. You have the You have the two or three mass conglomerations of beer brands and then you have dozens, if not hundreds or thousands of small, let's call them enthusiast brands, where people are just making beer because they really like beer. And fortunately for them, people like drinking beer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the people drinking beer are cyclists. <laughs> yes. Now, we, we mentioned before, or I mentioned before, about uh, founders of, of companies. And then you mentioned, um, I think Trek and Specialize. 
uh, Trek isn't owned by the founder of the company, but it's in the same family. Um, where Specialized is still owned, um, at least uh, partially. Marita owns no, an unknown chunk of it, but most of it. Um, but then, then Mike Sinyard, who who has owned it since the the when he found it in, in was it 1974, um, he owns it. But potentially, he will be out of that business sometime soon. Well, do you think? Well, do you think that company will radically change? Because Mike Sinyard has put an absolute stamp on that company in many different ways. You know, the way it operates, you know, legally and how it sues so many people, so many other things. That's, that's, that's a kind of <laughs> trademark Sinyard move, isn't it? Do you think Specialized will be a completely different company when somebody else takes charge and Sinyard is no longer in charge? Uh, well, I first my first job in the bike business was lifting boxes in a warehouse for a young hippie named Mike Sinyard mm -hmm. in in 1980. So Mike and I go way back, and he is absolutely the motivi motivating force in that company. And when, for whatever reasons, Mike is no longer there, it will de facto become a different company. Mm. There's a culture of innovation there that's very strong. There's a culture of marketing that's very strong. Uh, and Mike is very deeply involved in, in both the product and the marketing sides of the business. And the people he tends to attract tend to be real hardcore riders and want to go out on that famous, famous, you know, lunchtime ride with, with, with Mike there too. Uh, yes, although this is an enthusiast category, bicycles are, and if you go to pretty much any bike company, they have a lunch ride and it's serious throwdown mm. time. And mm. uh, Specialized has just made <laughs> more of an institution of it than some of the others. Mm. I remember on, on the lunch ride one day, they had a couple of uh, uh, professional road racers who were in town to, to visit the factory. And they went on, they went on the ride. And when everybody got back, uh, the professional cyclist says, do you guys always go that hard? <laughs> and people say, probably said, yes, we do every day. That's not good for you, you know. <laughs> they so were just there, expecting there are, a little tootle. Mm. There are a lot of alpha people on those rides. Mm. In, in, including Mike himself. Mike himself does the ride, does finishes respectfully, mm. uh, respectably. And uh, you know, probably continue doing it until uh, the day he can't do it anymore. So tying two things together here, in fact, three things, Mike Sinyard, um, a bicycle retail and pawn, you had this uh, quite, it might not be incredibly hilarious to anybody outside the industry, but to people in the industry, this is this is quite a funny thing happened if if they if they want to knock uh, Mike Sinyar, that is, in that uh, Pond came, and this is actually before they took over uh, um, uh, CSG, and that's they they bought Mike's bikes, um, which is a famous uh, chain of twelve bike shops. Uh, famous one of the things it's famous for is uh, is being a specialized retailer. So, so do you have any inside skinny on what, what happened there and how annoyed Mike might have been? Um, I do not. Um, I wasn't privy to the deal before it happened. I read about it in Bicycle Retailer, like along with everyone else in the industry. But for sure, 
it was a major shock in Morgan Hill where Specialized has its headquarters. Now, Specialized uh, decided to immediately remove its line from the Mike's chain. Uh, Giant stepped in and is now mm-hmm. sort of the, the caretaker brand for those 12 Mike's stores, uh, mm-hmm. which uh, for those who don't live in Northern California is very professional, highly respected, very successful line of stores. They have, they being the spokespeople for Mike's Bikes and for Pond have said, no, we have no we have no no intention of changing the bikes brands in the sold in Mike's stores, but I think you'll have to put a little bit of that down to just public relations. It's impossible for me to believe that a brand the size of Pawn would have purchased a chain of bike shops and don't want to put Pawn owned bikes into those bike shops. It's also the, the way that Mike Senyard reacted is also indicative of how potentially dictatorial he is and how idiosyncratic he is in that any you know accountant run business would not have done what he did you wouldn't you would just go oh that's business and then you would just carry on selling them bikes you wouldn't remove your bikes from as you said an incredibly successful well-respected bike chain would you um, I personally would not, but I'm not Mike Sinyard. If you want to know Mike's thinking about it, I suggest you ask Mike. Uh, how very diplomatic of you. Um, but okay. he... <laughs> you have to remember, I've worked for Mike on, on two different times and about mm. 20 years apart. Uh, one as a kid lifting boxes in the warehouse and the other as his director of marketing globally. Mm. But it's very, it was very Mike, wasn't it? To, to do what he did, that is just, yeah. And, and who else in the industry would do that? If anybody described that and, and didn't name any names and said, right, who did that? You'd go, well, Mike Sinyard, wasn't it? So he is kind of famous for, for taking things incredibly personally. But that, that I guess, is just to, to bring it back to, well, let's, that, let's look at the accentuate the positives here, is that he's incredibly passionate. And he's so passionate, he probably is willing to lose a ton of money just to, to, to in a fit of peak. Mike is a very passionate man and a very passionate cyclist. And that comes through in the brand as well, I guess, carrying on accentuating that positive. So if, if the leader is that passionate, people who you know, want to buy bikes and go, well, that must be an incredible bike brand because you've got this owner here who's an absolute crazy fanatic on, on bikes. And uh, he hires people who share his passion. Yeah, that was interesting to see that with 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 Mike's bikes and uh, and 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 the way that he kind of reacted to that. That was that was something else, wasn't it? That was that was again. That's another indication of the bike industry is very different to normal corporate America, isn't it? It is. Uh, cycling is an enthusiast-driven category, and that's true both on the supply side and the retail side and on the consumer side. Hmm. Getting back to the bike boom, but almost sticking with with specialized in in many ways, and that is, and this is just an anecdote, really, is so uh, the council, the chief council at, at Specialized, and, and and he does many other things at Specialized, and I'm sure you know him very very well, uh, uh, Marjavikius. He's he, I can't remember exactly when this was, but it was probably at the height of the boom uh, when you could you could travel again um, during the pandemic. He he was the probably one of the first people out to Asia from the, from the industry. I was really surprised to see him out there, but he was out there 
um, basically browbeating um, Asia and saying, you've got to build more bike factories because we haven't got enough uh, capacity here. Now, I'm sure that Asian um, uh, bike factory owners would love to to make more bikes for specialized and for all sorts of different companies that all go roughly the same factories. Um, but it's a quid pro quo. You can't just, an American executive can't just come across and say, just, you know, instantly build more factories because that then leaves them um, in potential problems when there isn't a boom in, in 2022. So do you know if uh, Marjavicki says, Bob Marjavicki, his, his, his demand for more bike factories, did that, did that pan out? Were more bike factories built magically by Asia? In the sense of creating new foundries, uh, footprints, factory footprints, that takes years to develop mm. and bring bring to reality. What is more simple is add another shift to production or build another line on the factory mm. floor. And I think Bob, uh, who is another guy I've known for almost 40 years, <laughs> uh, Bob was very effective in bringing that message to the uh, to the factory owners. But it's not as simple as just building another bike factory. There's two things involved here. The first is bicycles. Yes, you can make another factory if, if you wanted to, to build frames, but you still have to have the components and parts and, and, and uh, equipment to be put onto all those bikes. So you mm. can't build a bike new bike factory and expect it to be in business very long if you can't get more components out of Shimano and the other component manufacturers. You know, Sala Italia makes saddles on a, some very large percentage of, of bikes sold in the United States. And if Sala Italia doesn't build a new factory, then you know Carlton and Rick's uh, new bike brand can't have bikes made, no matter how many new factories they build. The other question is how many bikes are enough? And as an industry side guy, I take the position that we have had too many bikes in the market for the last 10 years. And absent an absolute boom in consumer demand, which you and I have already touched on in this conversation, uh, there, we don't need that many bikes. We don't even need as many bikes as we've historically been getting. Mm. The, so the, the boom that we had during the pandemic, is it, was, it, was it partly a boom um, just because the industry has actually been quite, you know, selling relatively low number of bikes anyway, and so anything that 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 hit that would make it into into a boom. But then that makes it in kind of like an, an artificial boom. If you didn't, if you're what you're saying is, uh, you've been making too many bikes anyway. Um, it's a little more complicated than that, and you've twice used the phrase inside baseball to describe what I do in the industry. Well, we can, we can really geek out on this as much as you want. One of the reasons there weren't enough bikes in 2020, well, the obvious one was there was, it became a surge in demand as people wanted fun, outdoorsy, recreational things they could do during the COVID. But the real reason was that 2019 was a record low level of imports mm -hmm. to the bike industry. In fact, 20, 2019 were the fewest bikes imported since 1982 to the bike industry. So at the end of 2019, 
suppliers had very little inventory on their shelves. Dealers had very little inventory on their floors. And when COVID first hit, everyone was calling Asia trying to cancel orders for 2020. And it wasn't until the dealers started calling up saying, we've got people coming in here who want to buy bikes. Uh, It wasn't until that happened that the suppliers tried to turn things around. So one of the reasons 2020 demand looked so big is because the supply of bikes to fill that demand was so small. Now consider you're a consumer, you want, you want to buy a bike. Let's say you want to buy a thousand dollar mountain bike. Well, you get on the phone, you call the first shop in town and they say, we don't have any mountain bikes. You say, okay, and you call the next shop and the next shop and the next shop. So there's this sort of phantom demand being built up. If the consumer calls 10 bike shops, the apparent demand for that $1,000 mountain bike is 10 times what it really is. Mm. Then to make matters worse, the dealers say, okay, I'm going to order 50 bikes or 100 bikes in the hopes of getting 10 or 20 because the suppliers can't fulfill. So I'm going to place really large orders and hope I'm going to get some significant fraction of that. This is one reason where dealers are placing orders for bikes into 2023 and for components into 2024. One of the th- one of the questions is, we know there is some increase in demand for bikes, but how much is the real increase in consumers interested in purchasing? it may be distorted. You get this sort of Dutch tulip bulb speculation going on in the market. Because we haven't really, in previous uh, times, there's been an awful lot of um, venture capital has flooded into the the bike industry. There hasn't been that much this time. Do you think that might be an indication that, you know, the the, the markets actually think, yeah, that the the boom isn't genuinely there? I don't know that there is more VC money floating around the bike business than usual. It's um, it's it's tough for a venture capital company to justify investing in bike brands with the relatively low return on investment that those, those brands actually get. The typical VC attitude when you see new capital coming in and buying a bike brand or buying a chain of bike stores or something is we're going to take this company and we're going to run it like a real business and then profit. It's sort of like the underpants gnomes theory of economics where you, you, you just start it up and you do it right. And then magically profit appears and historically it never has. Hmm. So we have um, one of the reasons bike brands tend to tend to flip a lot uh, is precisely that they if you go back to Schwinn in the mid 1990s where the company went bankrupt and went through a whole series of owners over the next 10 or 11 years before it ended up being a mass market brand uh, under the Durrell umbrella which was the company that owned Cannondale and uh, and GT in addition to Schwinn so venture capitalists are only attracted to the bike industry if they think they can fundamentally change how it does business. And the laws of perfect competition just don't work that way. So I was going to, I was going to try and interrupt you there. And I didn't, I, I wanted you to carry on, but I was going to say, 
is is there any point at, at looking at the industry in 10 years hence because so many things can change but just just if you look at if you extrapolate from today so you've got you've got a whole bunch of bike brands uh with their owners coming up to to retirement name no names uh and and you've got pon coming in which isn't um a vc uh funded business is in it for the long run because it's their run by some of them by by enthusiasts but they're also you know retail people and they and they they absolutely know this this market they're not going to be burnt because they 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 know it's a perfect competition area but is there any point at looking to think what can what will happen in this industry in the next uh, 10 years because the internet hasn't killed it off you know that was if we'd have been asked sitting here 10 years ago we'd have probably said oh the internet's going to kill the whole industry off you know there won't be any bike shops in 10 years and and lo and behold there are bike shops probably not that many different from 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 just a few years ago um so but, but what do you think what do you think the industries any of the trends that are happening now with the ponds of this world with, with all that are they going to be something significant in the next 10 years? Well, there's there's a couple of questions in that, Carlton. Uh, first is the question of uh, what's going to go on with PON. And if they continue what they've done in um, the automobile business and, and other businesses in Europe, uh, yes, they're going to make themselves into a major player. So there will be a major shift that the, the brand... <laughs> Right now, Cannondale is the number four brand, and with all the uh, the money and additional brands, it's very likely that the pawn group of brands will displace Giant in the number three spot. To your mm-hmm. larger question about will the industry fundamental change, fundamentally change, um, that's a real good question. I spend a lot of time thinking about that, and people pay me lots of money to think about it, but... Uh, <laughs> What I see happening is we may get a little stratification of bike brands. We already have Trek and Specialized at the top. And maybe we have Trek Specialized, Cannondale, and perhaps Giant, although Giant hasn't been willing to purchase bike shops. So the the top level of the bike industry in the U.S. anyway will be bike brands that also own retailers. They're vertically integrated. And those will be the guys making lots and lots of sales. There's nothing to suggest mm-hmm. they will be making more profits mm-hmm. on those sales, except to the extent that you know retail becomes a revenue stream where it kicks back to the, the company bottom line instead of going to the independent retailer. But that's mm-hmm. that's not going to move the needle. It's not going to change the EBITDA or the uh, earnings before interest taxes and uh, allowances. It's not going to change the EBITDA of the companies that much. It's still a low-margin gain, game, and as long as it's an enthusiast category with low barriers to entry and the other things, as we've discussed, it's going to be it's going to continue to be a low-margin game. I thought you might have actually at that point mentioned electric bikes because we, we you mentioned them before, but then parked them to one side. So you almost say they're almost a different category. They're not they're not bikes. They're e-bikes. They're they're, they're you don't you don't mix the two together. Um, and I have actually asked this to uh, Mike Sinyard in in the um, in the, the corporate meeting room at uh, at, the, at the HQ in, in Morgan Hill. I don't think I got an incredibly um, brilliant answer at the time, but anyway, um, companies like Specialized and Cannondale and all the other brands they're making their money right now, or all bike companies are making their money from from electric bikes and not from 
for want of a better phrase, analog uh, bikes. <laughs> so th- that that kind of suggests that you, you're gonna, the money's going to go where you, you the development is, is going to go where the money is being made. So in the end of that ten years, which I, I posited there, might there not just be you know the enthusiasts, the people who who listen to this podcast probably, uh, who mostly pedal their bikes and don't have uh, pedal assist. I'm I'm not being too rude here. I'm sure lots of people have pedal assist bikes, including myself. Um, but I'm just kind of generalizing. Uh, might not that fundamentally change the industry in that you have the industry is an e-bike industry. It's no longer a bike industry, and and bikes and lot um, you know like you know the, the standard pedal only bikes are actually this small niche typewriter kind of ownership category. You know, everybody else has got PCs. Okay, there's some people still typing on 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 typewriters. Do you not see that changing in the, within the next ten years? What's happening in e-bikes, and I'm, I'm glad you brought the topic up because they, they are their own world. So when we, when we look at import figures of bikes, they don't include e-bikes. And the reason for that is very arcane. It has to do with how the Department of Commerce tracks bicycle sales and e-bike sales. But what's happened in e-bikes in the last several years is you've begun to get the kind of market segmentation that we get with regular bikes, only it's this exciting new category that more and more people are coming into. You have sort of three tiers of, of the e-bike business. The first is the ones that are sold exclusively on Amazon, and they may be $1,500 or something, or $500. You have then the tier that is being sold consumer direct or through automobile-styled dealerships for companies like Radpower and Pedigo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you have e-bikes sold in bike shops, which are usually starting at about $2,500 and going up for there. So the market is heavily segmented by price. You are correct that e-bikes are the only really fast-growing major category within bicycles. Um, the others are gravel bikes and uh, cargo bikes. Mm-hmm. But the e-bikes eclipse all of them. Every bike company wants to be in the e-bike business in a big way. The question is, how much market share will e-bikes ever get in a comparison to pedal-only bikes? And nobody knows the answer to that. When we look in other markets, specifically in Asia and India and Europe, uh, they have all had a steadily growing adoption rate, and then one year the thing just takes off and the business doubles or triples. That may, that may or may not happen uh, in the United States. We could have a whole conversation about how the U.S. market for e-bikes is fundamentally different than the European market, particularly mm. in the Benelux countries in Germany, uh, less so well, in they, the U.K. I mean, 60% now, we're now approaching 60% of the market, in, the, in yes, in Benelux, Germany, uh, Netherlands, where you know we are rapidly seeing traditional bikes, traditional pedal-only bikes becoming a, 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 a much, much smaller category. And, and that being the case, bike companies are making their money from electric bikes. So that's what's keeping an awful lot of bike companies afloat right now is electric bikes. I'm not sure I completely agree. It's certainly the most profitable segment for the bike companies. Uh, Electric bikes are more expensive than pedal-only bikes. Uh, The margins are not particularly any better than they are for the the pedal-only segment. 
because there's intense competition around the electric bike business too. And uh, that's keeping prices down. And what tends to happen is the prices are staying the same, but the quality of what goes on the bike is getting better and better every year. So similar trajectory to standard bikes. Mm -hmm. However, the question remains to be seen is will we, when and will we get that hockey stick curve with electric bikes in the United States? You'll notice that uh, the UK has been a little more resistant to electric bikes. Um, they're either far behind or they're they're charting their own path relative to uh, the European, uh, the EU nations. Mm. Mm. Oh, very much so. But the potential is there. And, and you see this from like the, the, the kind of shops that actually sell electric bikes. They're often completely different to your standard bike shop. They are electric bike shops. They're not bike shops and they don't sell anything. Whereas a bike shop might sell lots of traditional bikes and electric bikes. You get these new category of of retailer that really only sells um electric bikes so there's there's this is the potential there for a bifurcation that the industry actually splits apart um we have and i alluded to this earlier where you have um where you have two dominant bike brands at slightly lower price prices price points uh rad power and and pedigo now pedigo sells their bikes exclusively through Pedego dealers. So it's a freestanding electric bike shop that only sells Pedego bikes, just like mm. you go to your Audi dealer, your Ford dealer, your you know Mercedes dealer, whatever. And uh, they're being very successful with this model. The, there are also independent electric bike dealers. They may sell several brands of bikes, of electric bikes, and they're taking on the traditional bike shop and fighting it out with them for who the electric bikes go to. So yes, there's a very real possibility that e-bikes will eventually split the industry. However, to date, they have not done so. But it is uh, also that not, not only will they split the industry, like that the companies themselves will be different. Potentially the, the consumers are very different and that's, that's a potentially good thing in that you bring a whole bunch of brand new consumers in, into cycling, even though it's not actually cycling, it's e-cycling. Well, absolutely. As we, we said earlier, more people on bikes is good for everybody. It doesn't matter whether those are skinny tire bikes, fat tire bikes, or electric bikes. Mm-hmm. Cause they need the same infrastructure. So yes. if you want bike paths in your city, doesn't matter what people are on, as long as they're on um, a, a bicycles that have to be pedaled in some way, shape or form, whether they've got a battery boost or not. Exactly correct. So that is potentially something that the industry will be very, very different in 10 years than just because of, of uh, electrification. Quite apart from the, the, the all the things that are going on and, you know, that maybe people don't really see very much, uh, you know, the, the vertical integration of, of, of the industry. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's two things that work with electric bikes. Um, the first is, will they, increase the, will they increase the size of the market? Yes, absolutely. And the, where the market share is, which channel of distribution is going to evolve over the next 10 years. But at the same time, all those major bike brands are going to continue selling pedal-only bikes. They'll just add electric bikes to their, to their quiver. Mm -hmm. And if we, if we look among... In, in addition to very high-end electric bikes from Europe, 
the, the best electric bikes, best in terms of highest price, best quality, are all coming from the traditional bike brands right now. I think that's the question I was asking Mike, actually. I was asking him, how much of a bicycle company will Specialized be, you know, in, in that, you know, might to be, actually be evolve? In, in, in exam, now as a historian, this is exactly the way that uh, car companies came about. So most most car companies started life as, as bicycle companies. And when it became very apparent early on, early 1900s, that there's much more money to be made in automobiles than it was in bicycles, all of these bicycle companies uh, morphed into becoming car companies. So my question to Mike, and, and also I guess my question to you, it was, well, you know, aren't all these specialist, what we think of as bicycle companies now, in 10 years, they're not going to be bicycle companies. They're going to be motorized bicycle companies. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's the case, particularly not in the United States. But um, for sure, they will be more electric, more electric in their product offerings than they are now, simply because the category is going to grow. And that's a positive thing. It's bringing cash into the industry. It's getting people on bikes who were not on bikes before. Everybody's happy. Thanks to Rick Vosper there. And thanks also to you for listening to episode 291 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast, brought to you, as always, in association with Jensen USA. Watch out for the next episode popping up in your feed next month. But meanwhile... Get out there and ride.